inherently optimistic. And to me, there's nothing, no brighter future than having really, really strong AI. <laughs> Welcome to Google Glass for Blurts. We are carrot-driven creatures, so if you put a vending machine incentive, I think you get a lot of people putting themselves in a line to get a kernel implant. Welcome to the Hacker Noon Podcast. I'm your host, Trent Lipinski. In this episode, I sit down with Natalie Fratto from Silicon Valley Bank. We discuss everything from quantum computing, neuroplasticity, to adaptability. This is a great, fun episode if you're a futurist, so stay tuned. I'm here with Natalie. Natalie, can you tell us a bit about your background and what you're working on? Hey, Trent. I work at Silicon Valley Bank. Right now, I'm doing global market expansion, so I'm based in Toronto, Canada, exploring the tech community and how we might play a role in it. Previously, was doing a similar role in New York City with a bit of Bay Area back and forth. And before that came from startup sides, my background's less finance and more startups. Uh, went through Y Combinator in 2015 with an on-demand services company, which is like a class pass for beauty services effectively. And before that I worked at IBM Watson. Nice. And you've been working, so you actually work out of the New York office that you mentioned, and you're currently right now in Toronto. So even though you work for Silicon Valley Bank, you actually hold down multiple territories. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So for Silicon Valley Bank, obviously, since the name is Silicon Valley, we were based there. We've been there for 36 years. But in the last probably 10, 15, maybe even longer years, we've realized that the biggest tech innovations aren't going to be coming out of Silicon Valley next. So I'm really bullish on tech communities in emerging markets, call it, to use suitcases word, rise of the rest. So I'm from Michigan, Detroit's super exciting to us, anything in the heartland, um, and then also global expansion. It's, it, there's no reason, and a lot of reasons actually against, um, assuming that tech will be best served in U.S. communities. So I'm super excited to be in Canada. Uh, the tech scene here is really technical, and I think number of factors make it ready to pop. So it's fun for us to be able to act as a bridge between Silicon Valley and these other areas and help them tell their own growth story. And what trends are you seeing in venture capital right now in 2018? I think it differs by area. In New York City, so much of what I was seeing is deeply financial. Blockchain is huge mm -hmm. there. Uh, AI is probably an undercurrent everywhere. But I don't believe it's kind of a sector. I believe it's, you know, it's a vehicle that allows other technology to be better served. Uh, here in Toronto, everyone, there's such research culture. Quantum computing is super exciting. A lot of deeply technical, also financial services, and then life sciences as well. Because there's so many hospitals and institutions here, I'm seeing, yeah, I guess categorically those are the areas. But I think a trend toward very deeply technical and a lot of focus on enterprise, I think I would say. I know that's very generic, but at a high level, those are the categories I like. So those are where I focus. So which ones are you personally really interested in? I know when we were talking a little bit before we recorded, you know, you had mentioned you were studying and kind of looking at quantum computing. Mm -hmm. What interests you about quantum computing? I think quantum computing is something that because it's a little difficult to understand, and obviously I don't have a background as a quantum physicist, People under-index on how important it's going to be. I think it's going, it's going to change everything. Our, once we're able to have a quantum computer 
powerful enough, it's going to change our entire banking and financial institutions. Uh, you know, RSA will be broken, codes will be broken, the person and the nationality of the nation who control the first supercomputer will have uh, a very powerful position. So even though it feels really far off, I think we're only three to five years out. So I, I spent a lot of energy getting to know the, the entrepreneurs here in Toronto working on it. There's a company called Xanadu that's doing really cool things in photonic quantum, so powered by light. And then of course there's kind of the 800 pound gorilla of D-Wave on the, on the west coast of Canada, which was the first company to commercialize a quantum computer. So but it's an interesting mix in that space of both corporate, so of course you've got the big guys, the, the Googles, Microsoft, Intels, as well as a few of these startups like Xanadu and Rigetti Computing who are finding ways to play in this space. It's, it's technically a, a huge challenge, but if you're able to find commercialization routes, first mover advantage could be extraordinarily helpful here. Well, and you touched on something interesting, and that's you know the encryption argument with quantum computing is mm -hmm. it, it can potentially break most types of encryption that we rely on. Yeah, in all of our financial infrastructure today, most of the security of most web servers in a time when we're already dealing with major data breaches and major yep. major security issues, and quantum computing is about to make that ten times more complicated. Yeah, uh, so it's going to be interesting to see what kind of happens. Uh, on the encryption side, especially with blockchain, which also relies heavily on encryption, and the advent of quantum computing, which can then break a lot of that encryption. I totally agree. I think for the blockchain community, I, I actually wrote a piece on this in Unhacker Noon because I find it interesting how under-indexed they are and thinking about things like quantum for a group that fancies themselves entirely futurist. It, a lot of, at least, Bitcoin-driven or consensus-driven uh, blockchain opportunities will become rendered useless if a quantum computer can break the codes that are computationally difficult. So creating quantum-proof uh, solutions is, I think, of the utmost importance. I'm sure there are other ways to solve it and other consensus or stake mechanisms, but I think it's one really important area. And I like the analogy I like when people want to understand how quantum works. And this is what I wrote about in Hacker Noon, effectively, pretend that blockchain or algorithms in general is somewhat like you and I are trying to find a cabin in the woods and there's a certain number of lefts and rights that we're able to make to be able to go back and find that cabin. You know, you can go left, left, then right, then right, then left, and there are a certain number of ways to do it, um, but only a certain number of those are accurate. A quantum computer effectively, instead of having to figure that out on the ground, is like bringing a helicopter to this foot race and saying, I can actually just see it, I don't need to play this game of, you know, solving for all these different paths. Yeah. No, quantum computing is definitely going to be interesting. Again, it brings about a whole new set of challenges for the industry. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of these industries like the blockchain industry, it's, you know, they focus so much on whatever their particular market is that they're not necessarily looking at the macro like an investor is, you know, at what's happening to all these other technologies that are being in development at the same time. You've got AI. I mean, AI is going to be huge. It already is huge. I mean, we're seeing it implemented on a daily basis with social media. We're seeing the impact of artificial intelligence, you know, every time we pick up our cell phones. For the average user, we're just not realizing that's what's happening but it is happening. Do you have any thoughts on AI and what that's gonna look like moving forward here? I think it's interesting that you started off by saying we don't really know what's happening all around us. I think that's an inherently human characteristic where 
we think linearly. We're, we're built to, you know, think, okay, after one comes two. And our initial intelligence inherently doesn't work that way. Technology compounds. So before we, it, it, and, and I think that's why it's actually really easy to forget how close we are to cracking a lot of these really important uh, milestones because it's more of an exponential curve. I mean, Moore's law is changing, but you know, it, it looks more like this than a, a straight line. So I think we're closer on all of this stuff. I am, I am inherently optimistic. And to me, there's nothing, no brighter future than having really, really strong AI. So to me, I'm hopeful that it's soon. I welcome the robot, robot overlords. So, so I like it. I think they're with any sort of hype cycle in the venture community, there's a lot of noise and it's hard to parse, you know, signal from that noise. So there's a joke often that, you know, it used to be companies were .com and then they were .co and then it was .io. And now all of these artificial intelligence companies, you can tell which ones maybe aren't as legit because they have .ai as their uh, domain. I don't think that's accurate. I can name hundreds of really strong companies who have a .ai name, but I think the, the, the point is, it shouldn't be a talking point in a VC pitch deck. It has to be the platform by which you solve some other really impressive technology. The, it, it, is a, it is a way to solve a problem, not a problem solver in itself. Hey, yo, you got a great tech story you want to get published? Maybe something about bots taking over Twitter or how Bitcoin actually works? Or maybe you just have a story about how to build a great software, or a great team. Get your expertise published on Hacker Noon. Email us stories at hackernoon.com and a real human will review your submission. And you've actually written about how, you know, most people are actually cyborgs. Uh, <laughs> I found this article to be pretty interesting because it's true. We're carrying around cell phones. We're carrying around all this technology. We are at a point in human history where the average person is carrying a smart computer in their pocket. We've come so far in the last 15 to 20 years in terms of being able to take all that technology, smash it into a little tiny device and put it into your hand and mm -hmm. carry it around with us. Mm -hmm. I agree. I think the amount of time where you'll catch me where this is you know, further from an arm's reach away is few and far between. And the simplified way I think about it is I have an external brain now. We have Google has changed the way that I need to retain information, which will change the way that my brain develops, which will change the way that my kids' brains develop, and the way that we structure jobs, the way that we uh, interact with other technology around us, the way that we view ourselves. I think it's actually really going to change our sense of self because I don't know about you, I, this is mine. And the information in it, even though I don't own Google, I have some sense of meanness about it, I think. Mm -hmm. So I, I have this deep-seated belief that we like to sort of raise pitchforks against technology and say, it's going to be us versus them. We've got to protect the jobs. We've got to protect people. And I, I think humans are a beautiful creature. Like, of course, we're all narcissistic and think that we're the best thing that's ever happened to the earth. That is obviously a debatable point as well, but I, I want my progeny to survive. However, I don't think it's going to be an us versus them. I'm going to become it and it's going to become me. And the line between human and computer will blur to a point where it no longer matters. That's not going to be an important question. It's what can we do together and how can I augment parts of myself, whether internally, externally, maybe internal, external won't even exist, to do better things. Maybe we're all going to be one organism collectively. I don't know. 
Well, and you've written quite a bit about adaptability and then even applying that to your investment thesis, but also just how you kind of look at the tech industry as well. Can you kind of go into, you know, what an adaptability quotient is and what that means? Yeah. So the adaptability quotient is my fight song. Uh, it's not it's not a topic that I created. I heard about it at a singularity conference a few years ago, and it was one of the speakers on stage that you know, I think there's this thing called AQ that we, that we should be focusing on over EQ. And then he moved on to some other topic. But I was like, oh, wait, no, there's really something there. We've so long focused on IQ, which mm -hmm. I think is becoming less and less important. Everyone can say scantron tests don't tell you how smart or capable somebody will be. But And then EQ, I think, is important because it shows human skills and we, we interact with humans. But what really I think is the sign of the times is how much technology has changed and how quickly to the point before it's compounding on each other and becoming more exponential. So the people or robots who will succeed in the future, I think will be those who are able to do faster feedback loops and change more quickly to be able to, if money happens over here one day, but in this other area tomorrow, if you can change on a dime, and operationalize more quickly than everyone around you, you'll be safeguarded against the future. And you wrote a little bit about neuroplasticity as well. And I found that kind of fascinating. Uh, so, you know, one of the things that we're potentially looking at that could happen here is having some kind of neural interface between computers. Yeah. Um, and like I, a neural link or kernel. Yeah. And you've done quite a bit of research on some companies that are actually working on this. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think they would say to my chagrin that we're pretty far off from having the capacity to implant something in your brain that extends it. And realistically, this is pretty close for a lot of my cell phone is, you know, we'll do a lot of those things, but I am bullish that it's going to happen probably again, sooner rather than later, sooner than I expect even because I can't conceptualize it quite. I think it's going to, yeah, I think it will be important. There's a company in, maybe it was Wisconsin where people were willing to put, chips in themselves so that they could get free snacks in the vending machine. Do you remember that? Yeah. I, to get them through the doors and like there was security. Yeah. It as well, but it, to get them to actually agree to it, they had to it get was them vending machines. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think my point there is just that we are carrot driven creatures. So if you put a vending machine incentive, I think you'd get a lot of people putting themselves in a line to get a kernel implant. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, there's scary implications, but there's also really beautiful ones. I'm, I'm always thinking about the positive side of what it could enable. So there's so much potential for good, but then you, if used the wrong way, there's also so much potential for bad. Yeah, I think technology, I, I subscribe to the belief that it reflects us back to ourselves clearly. It shows us more of who we are, whether it's good or bad. But I do think in general, technology has trended toward positive improvements. I, I, sometimes it feels really dark out there. I think, you know, statistically, life for humans is better than it's ever been. That's an aggregate, and it doesn't mean that we're not stratified and becoming even further stratified where the rich have more and the poor have less. But in aggregate, as a species, we're doing better. Who knows how that will continue, but I, but I, I think technology is really, you know, a facilitator in creating better outcomes. I also think, um, we may feel like it's darker because we are so interconnected. So we're able to see across to that child starving someplace in Sudan and say, oh my gosh, 
that feels like it's in my backyard. And because of our interconnectedness, it feels more painful, even if on aggregate we're doing better. And maybe that's great, but it also is hard. When I was a kid, I used to watch the local weather and now I could, that's just an afterthought. I'm tracking global weather. Now everything is so much more macro in terms of what kind of information you can get in real time to be able to just understand what's happening from tracking the moon to, you know, solar flares to, you know, all these different global events. You can get it now all in real time. However, I think back to the neuroplasticity point, we have a saturation point. There's only so much that humans can take and then also say, okay, well, I can fix that. I can't fix the moon's cycles and how that impacts tides over, like that feels like a pretty big nut to crack, but I can help my neighbor put up that fence tomorrow. So, so being able to feel empowered in this vast world that we now feel is touchable is a challenge that we have. Meditation actually helps with this as well as creating a little bit of space and room for new information to create some new neural pathways. You know, unfortunately, the, a lot of these devices, they are optimized for that dopamine hit. Well, that is good for these companies, bottom line, to keep people using their apps and keep giving them that little reward, you know, the carrot you mentioned earlier. At the same time, you know, that does have potentially a negative impact on some people's brains. Um, and those things have and haven't really been considered. And now that we're kind of aware of them, it's like, oh, okay, maybe we should be a little more cognizant of this because yeah. uh, it definitely has an impact. Hey, oh, you got a great tech story you want to get published? Maybe something about bots taking over Twitter or how Bitcoin actually works? Or maybe you just have a story about how to build a great software, or a great team. Get your expertise published on Hacker Noon. Email us stories at hackernoon.com and a real human will review your submission. You had asked me a question earlier about investment trends and I think meditation is a good example of things I'd like to see more of and meditation I think is something that uh, of course we've been doing for centuries and I think is having a, a renewed moment in our current culture um, but I think we're just scratching the surface of what's possible if we truly do only use 10% of our brain, but we recognize when we meditate and look inward, things you know, get better, we have power to do you know, X-Men-like shit, maybe there are a lot of, there's a lot of space for companies, instead of just calming your body, but you know, to really impact your mental performance, to impact, like, I think we're gonna have a lot of, not mental health, but sort of this neuroplasticity or neural training and feedback loop maybe the, the, the intersection of data science, neuroscience, machine learning, like that's going to be a space that I think evolves a lot in the next couple of years. No, absolutely. And I'm here for it. <laughs> I, I, I definitely see that as being, a, you know, a, a potential future market. It's just, you know, the, the thing with all these technologies is just the big question mark of when, um, mm -hmm. you know, is when is this going to be implemented in a way that's actually going to be brought down to actual consumer products? When is this going to get in the hands of actual normal people? Because a lot of this stuff, you know, exists in research labs and it exists in, in those kinds of scenarios, but we haven't quite seen some of these more advanced technologies actually make it into the hand of the average consumer. I mean, look at VR, for example, like, Oh, yeah. Really struggling to get VR into the mainstream, especially in the United States. It is just not taking. VR has been the biggest disappointment, I think, in the last couple of years where people had such inflated expectations of how close we are. But still, 
even though it feels like, no, the technology is not quite there yet, the second that it is, the second that you have that killer app for it and it feels real, we're not going to remember the day before. Yeah. It will feel like we've had that forever. We're not going to remember a time in which all sports weren't viewed that way and life was less like uh, Ready Player One. It's a dystopia. Personally, I think the hardware is actually there. My, Do you? I think, I think the software isn't. You know, for example, when Sony rolls out a new PlayStation, the first generation of games that come out, yeah, they're a little bit better than the previous generation, but the games still kind of suck. Mm-hmm. There's usually not a good game or a good killer game when they, they release new hardware. And it takes almost until the end of the generation of that hardware before the software catches up. I think VR is kind of in that space where the level of like software development that goes into creating an immersive world and then the creative element of that storytelling and all the artistic direction. I mean, that takes years of work just to do in a single movie to produce like 90 minutes of, a, of footage. So imagine yeah. having to create that immersive world and you know create an entire experience that is more than just 90 minutes of a movie that's like yeah. scripted and you only see the little tiny view. You have to create the whole world. My favorite museum experience ever, I love museums, was uh, the Boston Science Museum a few years ago had this exhibit on Pixar and it was the math and science behind Pixar. Mm. I didn't realize the way that I would think of Walt Disney back in the day is somebody sits at a drafting board and makes Mickey Mouse ears over and over and over again moving across the screen. Everyone is a programmer and they interviewed a guy and he's like, here's how I made seven million parabolas to imitate <laughs> blades of grass for XYZ movie. And I have a friend who works on water and sand and he's brilliant. The math and science now owns you know, this creative output, but maybe that also actually makes it challenging because you're melding these two versions of right and left brain in the, in the way that we create now for you know, virtual reality, a, a theory. And that's, and so you've got to both get the hardware and the software platforms into people's hands to make that a reality. That's why VR didn't take. You can have all the hardware in the world that's capable of producing realistic graphics, but if there's no one there to program it, and the programming languages literally don't even exist yet to do this, that's why it hasn't taken yet. And and I think it's a good example of an industry where things just didn't go as planned. Because if you had asked, you know, anybody in the VC space, like maybe two or three years ago, they were all like VR is the future and it's here and it's ready because the hardware yeah. was finally ready, but they forgot the software. <laughs> I like to look at it by what's hot at South by Southwest. I think this was very hot circa 2016. And, but then the year after no one wanted to talk about it or, you know, show it. Yeah. Like we'll be back over here working on the, working on the software. So I've got to ask because, you know, you're in the space and you're in this industry, but what are you seeing when it comes to women in Silicon Valley and venture capital right now? I think we're in the middle of a huge reckoning. I think it's an interesting time to be a woman in tech. Also, I think it's a really beautiful time because there's so much uh, space for conversation about what the statistics look like and how we encourage more parity in the industry. There are a few organizations that both I personally spend a lot of time with and, and SVB in general is very supportive of. Um, one of those is All Raise, which is a group of women in the Valley who are 
really, really incented and, and in so much more than just vanity metrics, incented to get other female VCs in the game. They have a data scientist who is running the numbers on what the statistics really look like in terms of you know, equity ownership, and which is actually, a, a, that's a piece that I think wasn't even studied until recently. Not only is there a disparity in how many butts we have in seats for female founders as well as VCs, but there's a huge equity inequality that is impacting the real power dynamics. In a Silicon Valley situation, the people who own equity own the future value. Uh, you know, on paper, these are the ones who are going to own the future. So we need to focus on advocating for that as well. But I think everyone knows where the industry is. There's been a, a lot of really slashing news, and it's been really disheartening to see. I obviously have experienced some Me Too moments myself, but in broad strokes, I'm really excited to be a woman in technology right now. I think there are great communities um, and there's some badass women doing stuff in tech, and especially here in Canada, I've met a lot of really deeply technical AI leads and quantum physicists, and I am I am stoked to be a part of that community. Yeah, I've met a lot of female entrepreneurs as well, and they're very hopeful for the future. Um, you know, they're they're getting a positive response now from VCs, and then also from other female VCs. There's definitely challenges that need to be overcome. But as an industry, you know, hopefully things are going to start to trend in the right direction. Mm -hmm. and I think I would be remiss not to note that there is an intersectionality needed here. Um, for me as a white woman, it, it is a lot easier. And statistically, I think there's something like 5% of women in, in the industry are, are women, but, you know, 0.01% of that are black women. So um, we, have a lot to, we have a lot of work to do. On Hacker Noon, you wrote some really interesting stuff about when you see these kinds of movements taking place socially, that's also an opportunity for venture capitalists to mm -hmm. either, you know, adapt to what's happening within, you know, society or yeah. to fall back and kind of go, oh, no, change is happening. Yeah. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Totally. So I think um, Arlen Hamilton is the best example of, of somebody with extraordinarily high AQ. And I actually wrote about her, this was probably six months ago in that Hacker Noon article, and then had a chance to speak on a panel with her and interview her on adaptability soon after that. And so she's on board with the idea that she has high AQ as well. And, and I guess just take a step back, Arlen is a, a black queer female VC who a couple of years ago was living you know, out of her car at some points and totally an outsider in the VC community, um, but really felt strongly that people who look like her we're not getting the time, attention, or resources they deserved in the industry, um, even though there were huge opportunities being missed by the, the current set of, of Valley investors. She has subsequently raised a huge fund and is solely dedicated to investing in underrepresented founders. And what I love about her is that experience has made her not only as powerful as the current set of investors, but I think so, so, so much more because A, she's gone through adversity, and B, she's got a deal flow engine that they don't have. She has a network that's broader mm -hmm. and wider and she's honed muscles and that neuroplasticity of looking a different way at what's coming down the pipes. And I think she's the first to say, this is not a charity fund. I'm not doing this as a nonprofit. I'm going to make a ton of money by looking at the things that you all are missing. And I think that that's, you know, she's right. I think she's going to make tons of money doing it. So do you have any hacks or any time in your life where you've implemented a hack or you've been in a situation where you had to hack something to get a certain outcome? I wish I was, I, you know, I've never thought about it as hacking in that way. Uh, I like that. I, maybe, I, I can't say myself, maybe I write about adaptability and 
you know, productivity and all these things because of my deficits. I don't know that I'm inherently adaptable. I don't believe that I'm inherently <laughs> very good at this. I think I wrote about machine unlearning and the idea that like forgetting is good for humans because I'm actually super forgetful. So it was me just basically saying, it's okay that we're bad at this. Robots are going to save it for us. So I, maybe the hack is just that they're going to fix it for me because I don't have any good hacks. I am the least productive person I know. Uh, do you have any final thoughts before we wrap up? I think in general, my final thoughts are that the combination of human intelligence and machine intelligence together uh, will create the best adaptable future. There we go. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Uh, where can people find you? Uh, I'm at Natalie Fratto on Twitter. Awesome. Well, again, thank you for coming on. Thank you. This concludes another episode of the Hacker Noon Podcast. I'm your host, Trent Lipinski. Please don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes and YouTube and follow us on social media. You can also find us at hackernoon.com and podcast.hackernoon.com for more episodes. Thank you for listening.